Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, I want to get started. Can you give us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah. So um, I'll be a little bit from uh, Motion Hall Focus, since that's uh, what takes up a lot of my time and attention. So Motion Hall's co-founder and CEO. We do deal enablement for biopharma licensing, mergers, and acquisitions. And so I'm sure we'll get to talk about that a little bit more. I think the big vision there is that we're trying to move life sciences innovation faster from patent to patient. So we're trying to pack the entire life sciences tech transfer cycle. And um, in my background, usually what people want to know when we're talking about Motion Hall is how I got into it. So uh, I started coding when I was five, not because I was brilliant, but because my dad was really nerdy. So he was like, all right, Rachel, take this computer. Here's a book of basic. This is what we do. Um, so I grew up coding first and getting online early, running web-based businesses as a teenager. Everybody said, Rachel, go to Silicon Valley. And the joke is on me because eventually I did. But at the time, I was like, if everybody says this, then uh, I better do something else. So I went and did uh, philosophy and computational neuroscience and really fell in love with the life sciences. Then through that work, I started to watch some of my professors try to spin out biotechnology companies and mobilize their innovation out to the market where it can help people. And I thought, gosh, why is this so hard? Why are they so stuck? And why is somebody who's just really the world expert trying to mobilize their life's work um, dealing with all this uh, complexity too, just to try to move what they've discovered uh, to where people can use it? So that's um, a bit about my background and why I do what I do. And then uh, other big interests, I think um, if we go beyond Motion Hall, I'm always interested in you know, solving big coordination problems. I'm interested in progress and impact. And uh, I think a lot about how we can apply what we've learned at Motion Hall and tech transfer there to energy and climate. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, I really love that that vision. And you know, I, I've really been interested in life sciences innovation just as a topic. I, I like to read about it. I'm, I'm no expert at all. But it does seem like, you know, it, the, the price to get a drug to market has just been expanding rapidly. There, there's this like, uh, there's this law, it's like anti-Moore's law. It's like, um, it's E-Room's law. And it's that the the prices of drugs are, you know, it's doubling every so often, every couple of years, it's getting more expensive and more expensive. Um, you know, and, and I remember the internal rate of return for pharmaceutical companies, I think went negative like last year or a couple of years ago. I don't know the exact, exact figures, but it seems like, 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 what's the big stumbling block? It seems like we have a lot of innovation. We have CRISPR. You know, maybe the scientists are less productive than they were 50 years ago, um, and maybe even significantly so, but we're still spending a lot more money directed toward these, these scientists. We're getting some amount of innovation, but why are we have like, where's the stumbling block in tech transfer from science to, like, actually in vivo in patients? Um, yeah, like, what's the big place? Is it like with the universities, with the IP protections? Like, is it matching scientists with companies? What does that look like? Sure. Um, yeah, and there's probably, um, I mean, there's a few different ways to answer that one. I'll, I'll answer with the one that I best said. I think um, sometimes I think a lot about, you know, where do people tend to go? They tend to go, if we just dumped more money on the universities and basic research, would that help? And the answer is, yeah, probably, right? That's not the one I'm most excited about. 
Um, you know, if we just waived all the regulation, um, would that help? I'm, uh, I'm less excited about that too. Although, you know, I'm sure there's some good arguments in favor. Um, the place that I think about the most is at these transfer points. Um, so, um, let me give you some context here. The average biotechnology innovation changes hands four times before it ever reaches a commercial patient, right? So in addition to that, you know, depending on how you count it, $1.6 billion, $2.6 billion per drug, you know, 11 to 12 years to get it to the first commercial patient, it's trading hands multiple times. So maybe that looks like transfer out of the university, then it goes to a little biotech, that biotech sends it to another biotech, that biotech sends it to maybe uh, a pharma in Japan, and then uh, another company has to pick it up for rest of world, right? So that's a lot of transfer just to get something to its first commercial patients. And at all of those transfer points, there's a tremendous amount of complexity and coordination that has to happen both between the biotech that owns the IP rights and the people who work there and understand it, and the company that's going to pick it up and finance the next stage of development and distribution. And so um, I want to make sure that I, that I say that in a way that's impactful enough. It's very, very hard for human beings to get their heads around uh, everything that needs to happen to go through that IP transfer point successfully, right? So you've got huge teams of scientists at a potential pharma company that's going to pick up that IP, you've got the business teams, you've got the legal teams on both sides of the fence, and everyone has to agree and see the opportunity in a somewhat similar way just to get it um, off the ground. And so if I can kind of extend that one a little bit more. From my vantage point, I talk to companies with really incredible biotech innovation every day of my life. It doesn't appear to me that there's a shortage of innovation and opportunity out there. Um, what there is, is a lot of trouble understanding where the real opportunities are, matching that up with capital, right? So capital allocation problem, and then coordinating people to actually distribute the best of that science uh, out to people. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It um it makes a lot of sense. So it's not, you don't think it's like a low hanging fruit problem where it's just gotten too hard to, you know, find new ideas or anything like that. It's, it's actually just like that. We've got this really Byzantine tech transfer process, which prevents us from getting uh, real innovations like into people. Yeah. You know, I think uh, I wouldn't even call it Byzantine. I think some of the things work. It's just um, maybe the complexity around what it takes to coordinate humans there is bigger than it was. Right. So um I see. I definitely can't believe that there's a shortage of innovation. I talk to such amazing companies all the time and, and they're everywhere, right? So we've got companies that we work with incredible innovation coming out of Chile who are now able to access the world, right? And, um, you know, all these platform technologies have spent out incredible numbers of drug candidates. Um, the complexity is understanding, coordinating, understanding on the other side. So something we talk about a lot is you know, it's great to be novel because if you've done something novel and it's a breakthrough, you can change the world. It's also bad to be novel because nobody can understand it, right? And so it's really, really hard to dig inside these companies that you absolutely need to license your IP to get your product, right? Because the costs are high because you need all that infrastructure to distribute drugs successfully to patients. You have to go through the transfer point, which means you have to arrange for the people at that company to see your science, believe that it's real. It's similar to like... um a late stage VC investing problem, right? But I'd say the complexity has exploded because you're not just evaluating business fundamentals, technology and people, but you know, maybe some very, very complex new science and you've got what, 100 opportunities to look like, look at that per day. Does that, does that kind of make sense where there's a complexity point there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's all these crazy like knowledge transfer problems about, you know, you know, how do you decide what's what? I, I, I'm curious, 
is how much of this this problem is just the fact that you know there there we don't see scientists founders I, i'm not sure why like you know in in it yeah. you know founders can you can have a founder led company you can take it all the way from nothing to you know ipo the whole way through this is very common it's rare that it doesn't happen other in other ways um relatively rare but you very rarely see like scientists led companies go all the way through and i wonder if on the back end that means they don't get much liquidity they don't have uh, much ability to invest in you know companies they know they will will be successful they've got special expertise in that front because they've actually been through the whole process so you don't these people don't really exist there aren't many of them um, and, and then you don't have they, these kind of special capital allocators that can signal to the market like this is a great idea you need to invest here um, I don't know does that make sense at all yeah no I think uh, I think about that um, and problems like that a lot right so I mean I think biotech and solving problems in the life sciences building a company in the life sciences not always but usually pretty different from building uh, a tech company it's much more rare to get somebody who's a world expert in their particular slice of novel science who can also lead uh, a company and become a fabulous capital allocator they're out there but it's much more rare um could there be more of them i think there could be right so then what do we need to do uh to make it so that there could be more uh sort of empower- empowered scientific founders that are leading companies and maybe helping uh nurture the next round of companies um, particularly around their, their they're, they're going to focus around their areas of scientific expertise, right? Because there is that complexity there. Um, you know, what was I thinking about when I was thinking about this, uh, this problem, another really big difference for scientific founders and for biotech companies that are trying to build is just the right enormous cost of drug development. Right. right? And then they've got no, so on like, um, a tech company, again, with some exceptions, there's no easy route to revenue, right? Right. So if you wanted to get leverage on your investors, which a lot of us who are building software companies do so that we have more choice, uh, then you build revenue and you get, you know, Paul Graham's ramen profitability or something like that. But you can't do that if you're a biotech investor. You absolutely right. need that capital and large amounts of it just to get uh, the company moving. And so that means investors really have biotech founders over a barrel, right? And it's very hard for them to generate leverage. And so it's much more common for them to take more of the company to take, I mean, I've never seen a biotech company structure with super founder shares where the founders have uh, control, right? Usually the VCs get control of the company very quickly. And then um, I think the attitudes and norms there are really different, uh, sometimes for the better of the company, sometimes for worse. So it's common to me teams out there that uh, we'll find IP they like, back it, and then fire uh, the founder scientist and the rest of the team and replace them, right? right? So something that was much more common in tech, I think, before Paul Graham kind of came in and introduced some new norms, right? right? And so what would a healthy set of norms look like for biotech? Um, you know, I think about that all the time. I wonder if, you know, we'll be in a position to socialize some of them from our vantage point at Motion Hall. And I'm sure there's other people who are thinking very hard about how to how to do that too. Absolutely. No, yeah, it. it it makes a lot of sense. And it, it also, it, it's notable. I remember this is this, this weird anecdote, but in college, like I was looking at wide range of startups doing some project at the business school. And, um, and I was looking through things and I noticed that most of the biotech startups were led by MBA founders who were clearly like, you know, they, they hadn't had the idea originally. Right. And so I, this was like very, very distinct from most successful IT companies that, you know, th- it does happen, right. You'll have like an MBA founder, but it, it's much more rare. And so I, it, 
it is that it's very notable, right? Like it, that just is kind of a signal. And it kind of runs all the way up the chain, right? Um, right. You know, and I, I think it's harder, right? If that scientist founder has to be so focused on being the world expert in their science, right? Then it's really right. hard for them to cross that bridge. They have to trust. There's a whole world of, I think, um, not to pick too much on MBAs, but, um, you know, often somebody with lower conviction who's looking to make a buck maybe has a different sense right. of uh, mission around the company, right? And um, and so things get choked up. Like they get choked up there, right? And yeah. uh, I don't know how we, you know, I think you'd have to change the whole culture, maybe create a lot more transparency around opportunities, which is something we're trying to do Definitely. To, to drive that down. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe like you said earlier, like it's it's even worse that the MBA is indicative that oftentimes these people were installed because by you know VCs because we need you know we need this like uh, business person to come in and like actually run things and and I don't know like and they don't have that specific vision of like what the future will be like it's just kind of like a job at the end of the day. Um, maybe uh, can I uh, can I see something nicer about some of the business people in the life yes, sciences please, too? Please do. I think um, you know you do see that structure, but I think particularly at the biotech company level, you know, we do see a lot of really good partnerships between, you know, a scientific leader who has respect for uh, a business teammate that they've selected. That person probably has like a PhD in yeah. molecular biochemistry as well. Maybe they've also got a law degree or an MBA. And then right. there is an alignment in that everyone understands like this is their life's work. Exactly. There's a lot of capital, you know, they can make money here, but also, um, you know, they're very focused on their patients. I think sometimes, um, the job is just hard and there's too, you know, maybe there's another opportunity, too little light shot on the people who are doing heroic work, trying to mobilize right. uh, new medical innovations to patients. Right. And, and doing that with a lot of um, mission orientation. Absolutely. No, yeah, definitely. And and I think two in the box leadership works really well, you know, like a business person, technical person together that often can be, can be quite helpful kind of dividing up those duties in a, in a robust manner. Yeah. I, I'm curious, do you see like uh this kind of situation changing just at the macro level, you know, interest rates are very, very low. This has pushed a ton of capital into the VC market. You know, it's up to like $650 billion last year. And most of that is just people searching for yield, right? Um, it, this is like a longer, like 800 year trend of interest rates, like intersecting, like getting lower and lower and lower. Maybe we're running out of ideas. We're not sure why, but interest rate rates seem, seem to be like, they will probably be lower in the future than they are now. Um, but this is my guess. Do you think like that will encourage more capital in the into the markets, and as a result, you know, scientist founders will get better terms in the future because they're you know if there's more capital, there's more competition for that capital, and maybe they don't have like the the ramen profitability kind of leverage, but at least like there's more competition um, for capital if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess my answer is maybe on a long enough time horizon. Probably. Um, but short term, what do I think? Short term, I think it really looks like a mess gotcha. right now. A lot of capital being misallocated. Um, the companies don't have the talent and structures to mobilize it properly. Right. Usually when there's waves like this, there's a big, you know, people get their fingers burned and then they recoil. And, you know, my short term bet would be that we're going to go through that pattern before we get to this kind of golden age of biotech. I think we have to get there. There's so many hands working on it right now and everybody understands the importance and um, the COVID pandemic shone a lot of light on that. But um, if I look at where the money is going right now, the way it's being used, the lack of talent uh, in the biotech space as well, right? So there's scientific talent. I think the innovation around that is actually pretty good, if you ask me. But um, the talent with, uh, I think, also that mission orientation and drive is in such high demand 
right? To actually successfully mobilize things and coordinate a team to do that. And uh, that's where a lot of these companies that have been capitalized recently are falling down because they're hiring quickly like a blitzscaling startup does, but they're a biotech and it just takes more time and attention and a steadier hand to actually move things successfully. So I think a lot of them are in trouble. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and these things can go backwards. Like we saw that with the dot-com bubble. It took a whole generation to kind of for that to filter out. And um, th- these things can take a, a long time to work out. So I, I'm curious, you know, I, I know you probably can't go into specifics, but it, what I'm guessing is, is that what you do at Motion Hall is you try and match these inputs together better to get more, you know, more successful innovations on the back end. So you've got, you know, early stage scientists, you've got all this capital and, you know, there's, uh, you know, all the contract research organizations in between and all these different steps you have to do. It's a very complex process. And if you could coordinate this better, you could get more outcomes. Is that correct? Yeah. And so I think, uh, what do we talk about? Like uh, failure rates in drug development, right? So biology is hard. I would say oh, maybe only one in 3,000 uh, drugs that get started actually makes it to a commercial patient, right? So could you drive down everything else that introduces unnecessary risk in that process? And, um, you know, in terms of emotional, so we don't work with CROs. We don't do any sort of matching or driving down complexity there. We're all about this matching problem, right? So if you have to take your IP, transfer it to another part of, you know, to another group, whether that's another biotech or pharma, uh, which you do because that's how you're going to, for most uh, for almost every biotech company, that's how they're going to bring revenue into the company to fuel the next round of development in their pipeline, right? And then pharma has to buy to fuel um, what's in their commercial and marketed portfolio. And so if you have to make these transfers, then um, yeah, not just matching them. So so we'll do the matching. Uh, sometimes people say we're like almost like okay, Cupid for biotech and pharma companies, right? So uh, sort of a logical matching, but then also providing all that context and best practice around it to co- help people coordinate to understand the match. Because it's one thing to say, hey, look, um, BioNTech's you know, mRNA vaccine Pfizer is a 90% match for what you want to do now that there's a pandemic, right? Um, you know, And then there's a lot of information that's needed. Well, do I really believe that that's true, right? How do I know that it's true? How do we see that this is the right partnership on both sides of the fence? And that's where, um, that's where I think we're trying to shine a lot of light. And then um, we do bring huge amounts of data to bear and workflows around that so that it's easier for people to see each other. What's a good analogy for that? You could almost imagine we're merging together something like OKCupid with the Bloomberg terminal, right? So yeah, if that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. No, so that, that makes a lot of sense. And it seems like, uh, so traditionally, excuse me, I just don't know much about the space, but yeah. uh, traditionally, do people that are trying to like uh, buy this IP, I'm assuming, uh, is it M&A people at large pharmaceutical companies? Is that kind of correct? Yeah, let's talk about the structure because I think, um, okay. right, you have your corporate development that's doing M&A and maybe they have some different focuses than, uh, so in the life sciences, you've got these really structured groups on both sides of the fence to deal with these transactions because they really are lifeblood of the industry. So it's different from other verticals, right? So pharmas will have their business development and licensing group, right? And you can find them maybe at Pfizer, it's a 70 person group or something like that. Uh, and their job is to search and evaluate, right? So to look for IP that they can license in that aligns with whatever strategic priorities are top of mind for them. Uh, There's scientists around that playing a role. And on the biotech company side, you've got uh, both your heads of corporate development who are looking at either looking at the M&A components, uh, buy or sell. And then you've got your chief business officer who's looking at licensing an IP maybe from a university and then licensing IP out. So there's a huge, what I'm trying to say, there's departments and job functions that all they do is think about these transaction pieces for IP. 
uh, on both sides of the fence. Gotcha. So, so it's matching those two together. It's it, making that easier. It's matching those two together. And then, and then a little bit of breaking it up, right? So you might think differently about buying a whole company than just licensing uh, IP, even though you get total rights uh, to that piece of science if you license in the IP. Gotcha. And, and traditionally, is it just kind of like a super manual process where maybe, you know, like Sally down here at Duke and she's got a great idea and, you know, like maybe there's like these like very rough networks of people and maybe you're on Google trying to figure these things out. Like, I, I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, no, I think it's been through um, like several iterations over the last so many decades, right? So if you go back far enough, it was really um, very who you know, very geographically locked, uh, lots of networks of trust. And that makes sense because there wasn't a lot of information uh, available. I think over, particularly in the 90s, a lot of databases were developed that tried to scrape uh, clinical trials and get manual input on the world of biopharma. And those have helped, right? And so I think before Motion Hall, the best practice was a lot of pouring over those databases and Googling, plus using networks uh, of trust, and then still a lot of geographical locking and hoping you bump into the right person at a conference and spray and pray strategies to try to match with the right person. Um, and then I think um, some of those dynamics that you see in venture come into play too, right? So, um, you know, people do move based on fear of, miss- you know, greed and fear of missing out, right, with these with these products. And um I think what we're trying to facilitate with, you know, now a global customer base and and a fair amount of success is, you know, can we drive down that geographical locking um, by making this really transparent, uh, showing people exactly where the fits are and what they need to know to actually start to build a successful relationship with the company on the other side of a transaction. Um, What else has been great there? The pandemic did do a few things that are very good for the biopharma industry. And one of them is that instead of having to meet at conferences and shake hands, uh, people get on Zoom now with their video on, and that's been really, really good for companies that are, for example, in Chile, building something absolutely tremendous for cancer or in Australia or Korea, right? So it means that they've got more windows plus the tools to connect to the right people and um, and move some of that globally. Whereas in the past, I think uh, you know people literally walked around, you know, Sand Hill Road and South Bay and, um, you know, tried to meet the right person Um so I've got a cute story. So one of our board members, Rod Ferguson, led the Rituxan deal for Genentech. And so Rituxan is one of the most uh, important cancer drugs, um, you know, from the last decade and more on the market. It's available to patients everywhere. Uh, and that's uh, more than a billion dollars for Genentech every year. Uh, I think it was past two last time I looked. And so uh, literally Rod found uh, IDEC and the Rituxan molecule because they were down the road from him uh, where he lived. And then he was able to license that uh, for what he says is a song about $7 million, right? And people really didn't fully understand the potential of that drug at the time. And yet it's been um, absolutely incredible, right? So that's how it has been done. Um, wouldn't the world be much better if you could see globally where all that innovation is, it was much more transparent, if people could connect and have the right conversations faster, right? So that's what, that's what we're trying to facilitate. Got it. Got it. No, I, I, I really love that. I, I'm, I'm curious. I, I, it, it's such a, it's such a big problem, right? Because tr- you know, if traditionally people are literally like just this incredibly ad hoc manner, and you can in some way kind of much more systematize these things, you can get, a, you can match much more inputs together, get a lot more outputs on the back end. Um, uh, also realized I got the retoxin numbers really wrong. It's more like right. ten billion. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Uh, Even more. Someone's gonna fact check me. 
<laughs> Absolutely. No, that's good. That's good. Well, I'm curious. Do um, when you're looking for a successful drug candidate, and this this might not be exactly in the area uh, you guys are working in, but you know, you're looking for a successful drug candidate like rituxan. Um, generally, it seems like people have taken a very uh, kind of statistical approach. It's like we're just gonna get a bunch of like compounds and and try to find them or something like that. Whereas it seems like the the best way to do it and the way most drugs have been discovered. I read this kind of popular science book on it, so I, I don't know much about this. But it seems like most of the way these drugs have been discovered is because people find some big something that does something like a big effect size. So you know, like uh, this is how we found like some of the first cancer drugs and all these different like antibiotics and things like that. It was just like wow, like this is doing something. It's doing like a big thing and then you can apply it in different areas so i i don't know like are there any like heuristics you look for when trying to evaluate candidates like molecules i mean um let's see uh there's gonna be a lot of answers that i think what do i say some of that just falls outside of my expertise right and it's gonna be so gotcha. different right. uh depending on different companies um what the we look at much more boring heuristics but i think they're worth noting so um you know when we're working with companies we'll say look you're, you're going to know your science best. So apply your best scientific lens on top of all the candidates that you have, right? And sometimes we're working with companies that have maybe 700 candidates yeah. that they're looking at or, you know, how many permutations of clinical trials programs that they could run. So pick out the ones that are the strongest scientifically, and then let's apply um, a business lens over top of that, right? So if you know that you have to match, and this is a constraint uh, on the market, right? If you know you have to match with a company that can help you distribute that, then before you dump all this money in here, and maybe somebody's got a solution to this, is this is not ideal. But if you know you have to match, then let's see who's out there that you can even match with, right? Because the way that you're going to get more capital to fuel the next program that you want to develop is by finding that partner who's going to put capital back into your company and take it through the next step, right? And so one of the places that companies fall down is optimizing scientifically, but then not thinking about the fact that they're going to have to partner. And if you build something that the rest of the biopharma market doesn't want to cooperate with you on, or that's very hard to get them to cooperate with you on, then that innovation just sits. And I think a real shame there is, right, the patent ticker uh, is going, right? And so um, it becomes less attractive the longer it sits and uh, the longer you have to fight to get somebody to pick it up, right? Then the innovation's really at risk. Gotcha, gotcha. No, th- that makes sense. It-, it sounds like the red-haired boy problem they talk about in in like IT venture investing. Have you ever heard of this? I don't know the red hair boy problem. Uh, tell me this. Yeah, so it's a Yudkowsky kind of idea where you know if you're an early stage investor and later stage investors just refuse, like they don't like red haired you know founders for whatever reason um, yeah. or purple hair, you know, like you name like some characteristic. Um, even if like the business is a really good idea, if they can't get capital in later stages because you know people aren't interested in some aspect of the company, like we don't invest in like marketplaces, like. If common knowledge is marketplaces are a bad idea, even if it's a good idea to invest in the company, if they can't raise money later, yes. you're, you're much worse off. This is exactly how biopharma works, okay. right? And so right now, like Alzheimer's is super unpopular. Um, diabetes is super unpopular, right? I've seen amazing uh, drugs in the diabetes space that have a real value proposition to just like cure diabetes, right? Amazing. Right. Uh, it's almost impossible to get people to look at it. Uh, when I'm talking to those teams, I'm like, look, okay, like, I do believe if you have something that good, uh, you can find uh, buyers and partners, but we're going into heroic sales here, right? So, um, and, uh, you know, I'd love to work with you on heroic sales. And then, you know, are they up for 
that type of task, right? When the market's really, really uh, rough. So um, it's absolutely like that. And it goes through trends and fads, just like the tech scene does. So right now, a lot of capital is going into Web3. Yeah. Maybe if you're not Web3, certain investors don't want to look at you. Something we hear from biotech companies is everybody's interested in immuno-oncology right now. Nobody wants to look at a chemotherapeutic. It's viewed as last generation, but look at the lives that I'm saving, right? And so then we say, okay, how do we get into figuring out how to develop, you know, right? So you get into heroic sales, right? How do you develop those, you know, fit points that are out there, generate understanding? Again, I always think there's a way, but but the it gets harder and harder and harder, right? Just like I think it does in tech. And it may be some ways even harder because if you're trying to raise capital and what you're you're the red-haired boy, um, you can probably find somebody who doesn't hold that bias um, and uh, and get that done. Um, if you're a biotech company, you have to com- usually you have to convince full committees of people, right? So there's just a lot more stakeholders to arrange to have move, and so that just really um, exacerbates the scope of the problem and how much heroic efforting it takes to get it over the fence. Um, I will give you something that I think is really neat. That's also been possible with some of the new transparency in the space. It's something we're working on, but there's other ways to look at this too. Um, the far, the big pharmas, right? Like your Pfizer's have the biggest committees, right? And they have a lot of trouble coordinating amongst themselves, right? So, um, you know, and because science is complex and the business is complex, adding more headcount money doesn't actually help you solve that coordination and complexity problems. In some ways, it makes it worse. There's all these little medium and specialty pharmas out there that are maybe not beholden to the same rules that have smaller committees or fewer decision makers. They've been traditionally very hard to find, um, but it's easier to match them now and find them now. And so sometimes there's a way to get something moving uh, through one of them, right? Provided that the biotech uh, and that pharma can come to an agreement. And you know, things like uh, maybe the board blocks it because it's not a big enough deal, right? So um, yeah. That's good. No, I mean, that's a really good development, right? It's like like smaller players who can can actually like uh, get more conviction because they don't con- convince like large groups of people internally yeah. to uh, buy into like good ideas can, can really help. Absolutely. I, I'm i curious. It almost sounds like the, uh, yeah, like the, the venture model, model where like partners can make, uh, this is not all venture firms, but some venture firms are the model where, you know, partners can make their own decisions. And like, we just kind of like outsource that all. It seems like important to do that especially in biopharma because um you know like trends can really influence like whether or not you you, you invest in a you know if it, it's just unpopular you know like it's almost like the 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 problem i see where you know football coaches never go for it on fourth down even though they always should because like you know like if you still lose you lose bigger and that looks worse right sure. and nobody ever got fired for you know fire, like hiring a a um, harvard grad even if they're like a bad fit that's right. Very similar problem. That's right. No, that um, that kind of fear is a really big problem in the pharmas, right? And um, nobody wants to be the person who did like, you know, what this multi-billion dollar stem-centric deal and then it fails, right? Like right. people yell and scream inside the big companies, um, both about missing things and about buying a dud. Um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of capital that goes into it, and the stakes are high, right? So pharma companies know that if they don't renew their pipeline right? Drugs go off patent. They're going to go generic, which is good for all of us, right? The way the machine works is good uh, for all of us, but it means they have to renew and have another big moneymaker in there before their portfolio goes off patent. Otherwise, uh, they're looking at layoffs and their stock price goes down. And um, so so the tension and the pain there is really real for them. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. You know, 
there's different comp structures too that try to push these people to make deals on time. And then, uh, you know, a lot of folks in buy side licensing or or company M and A, right? And sometimes, um, just just for context, sometimes M and A in the biotech and pharma space just looks like another straightforward transfer of IP, gotcha. right? So it's um, less moving parts, right? We're buying the IP so that this company can move it. Um, you know, you'll hear a lot of those people say that the hardest negotiation they have to go through isn't with the biotech company. Uh, it's with their internal stakeholders, right? So you could have even a few really motivated champions for a piece of science um, and still have them spending uh, a tremendous amount of time on that. I think a really amazing example of that. So again, uh, Rod Ferguson, who's on our board, has done two um, sort of oral histories with us. One is on how he uh, led the purchase of Rituxan and what that was like for Genentech. The other he does is talking about the auction uh, of Herceptin, which is another really important molecule. And what's fascinating about that is what he needed to do um, as a, a BD person at Genentech under Roche to auction that. And he had the world CEOs from pharma companies coming to buy this with the notion that Roche was out of the deal. And the way that worked is so Roche didn't believe in Herceptin. And if you read the story, what you can see is only once everybody else wants it, um, does Roche come back in and say, actually, we have a first right on this and now we're going to exercise it late in the auction phase. So those stories are amazing because things still work that way. Even though those stories are dated now, those human realities and coordination realities are still how the drug uh, industry works and struggles to understand things. Absolutely. And it sounds like uh, just like everybody, they're they're just highly mimetic and and it's like, and that drives a lot of light a lot of activity they they um and and a lot of their decisions right you just talked about roche like you know they didn't want it until everybody wants wants it and then everybody like, wanted okay. it yeah no i mean so so yeah very similar in terms of you know greed and fear of missing out driving a lot of decisioning and then if you've got a team on the other side who really knows how to amplify those dynamics um you know then that can help them get a deal done and it can also contribute to maybe not the wisest allocation of tech capital, right? So Absolutely. a lot of challenges there. Yeah, it's a uh, it's really fascinating talking to you. I you know I've had some of my suspicions. It kind of it probably you know works like this in drug development, but you know I I don't know. But uh, you know the ideal state world would just be like, well, we all sit down and objectively evaluate what are the best molecules, and then we move them for, through the process. And instead, it's just like it's it's incredible how it you know actually works. Wouldn't, the wouldn't that be nice? Economy. I mean, I wonder. Uh, you know, if you look way, way into the future, right? Um, you know, maybe there is some sort of, you know, with enough data capture and a big exchange, right? It does seem like it would be possible to get line of sight on where the best innovations are, where the best matches are, move them, or, or the whole structure changes, right? But um, what do I tell people? I think I'll be old, right. uh, you know, quite old by the time that happens. I'd love to help. Um, yeah, absolutely. Right now, it's still very people, right? Right now, it's really about helping people navigate these dynamics. I think that's the most powerful place to make an impact. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, how did you first identify this problem as a problem we're solving in that like, and, and was there an aha moment where you were like, wow, this is a, uh, this is, this is an area where a, a robust solution could really, really help things. Or was it just kind of like a gradual process? And the second question going off that is, you know, how sure were you that it would work? Uh, yeah, those are both great questions. Uh, I'd love to say I could tell right away, but it was a gradual it's a gradual process with a lot of horror, I think is what I would say. I think everybody wants to believe that the world works better than it does. Um, and it's poorly understood, right? So like we talked about earlier, people tend to have this perception that all the innovation happens in the universities and that the pharma's just taken in charge a lot of money for it. 
Um, and that's really not true, right? There's all these biotechs in the middle who are doing uh, a tremendous amount of work. Um, and then, right, all these kind of transaction points that we've talked about. Um, how did I get into it? So um, I have that three-point background that I talked about, right? So I grew up coding and running my own web-based businesses. I did neuroscience. I watched my professor spin out. I started to work with, um, because I saw that problem, I started to work with the CEOs and boards of biotech spin-out companies. And at first I thought I was going to buy, I was like, these are data problems, right? There's information problems here. I'm just going to buy the software that must exist um, to help solve these problems. And then I did find these kind of 90s era databases. And it's a really classic tech story, right? Why is everything... So broken, let me call some people up. It was pretty easy to find people who are willing to talk to me. It's like, what do you like about the databases? What do you not? Oh, they're full of duplication errors. And they don't have most of the information they need. And they're manually curated and focused on public companies. And, um, you know, I guess because I had that tech background, I was like, okay, there's room to do a lot more here. But even then, I think it's been an, uh, a multi-year journey, just appreciating the full scope of the complexity how inefficient and opaque the market is. It's truly horrifying. And to amplify that, you know, the young people who join my team or people who just haven't worked close to these problems in the past, as they're orienting with Motion Hall, you can almost see them like, it can't work this way. It can't be this bad. No, it's this bad. Like, you know, we're sitting on top of, you know, we see some of the world's most amazing innovations for COVID, for cancer, for preventing future pandemics, for diabetes. Um, and uh, and then we look at the teams and we look at the challenges they have. And uh, this is it, right? Like it's a really big, messy problem area that suffers from um, the information complexity, the opacity of the market, you know, human limitations, lack of talent. Uh, it's a mess. My take is it's a mess. Definitely. No, th that makes sense. And I, this question I always like to ask founders, because um, uh, I'm always trying to trying to level set this. Um you know, Elon says he thought there's like a 10% chance he would be successful with, with, uh, SpaceX. Uh, you know, like, like, did you, you know, like, did, I don't know, did you assign odds to it? Did you, uh, and, and like, uh, I mean, I still have that... myself, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think, um, what do I think? Um, because, uh, what the vision would be not just to solve, um, the places that we're playing now, but you know, what, how much can we do to move things from patent to patient, uh, more efficiently in a way that's better for, for people and patients and companies and economies. Um, um, what have I thought? You know, I did think getting into this that it was a lower risk prospect than some of the other things I might build, right? Because, uh, right, tech, life sciences, a bit of business. I had a lot to learn, but that's an interesting three-point background. And I am very tenacious and I'm good at eating complexity. And I was like, this is a really ugly baby, right? This problem is it's ugly. Nobody wants to love it. In fact, nobody else does love it. I took a good look. I don't, I still don't think anybody else loves this problem, but me. Um, and so, you know, that gives you time to become a real expert, um, managing this really important unloved baby, right. And they're all over the place. And so those things made me feel like if I pursued the problem method at all, you know, with, with a strong methodology and followed strong playbooks, uh, we would be successful. And so, that's worked, right? Like we're now a global company. The technology works. People told me you'd never be able to do it. Um, you know, we're helping companies all over the world. Um, you know, the grander vision, right? How far we can take this. I think um, I'm still, I wish I could say I have 100% conviction we'll get there. But, um, you know, there's still open questions for me. How far can we really take this? And it probably depends in part on, you know, how many willing hands want to join and help me push. 
uh, the vision who are truly uh, exceptional. But um, you know, for the pieces that we've cracked already, they are they are done. It's just scale now, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I love it. Do you think uh, generally people should be more confident about? Um, yeah, should people? I guess at the meta level, be more confident generally about their ability, like if they plan well and they ha- have a unique insight to kind of uh, do something that uh, kind of gives them an outside return. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. People should, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, there's always this kind of funny conversation happening about, well, is starting a startup actually risky, right, in the tech scene? And, you know, for a lot, you know, for some people, the answer is yes. You've got to know yourself and think about the opportunity and who you are and what you bring to the table. But I think there are more people for whom it's not as risky as it appears, right? I mean, you know, you plan, um, you certainly have to grind and put in the time, but the outsized return is there. Um, the networking opportunities and learning opportunities are fabulous. Um, maybe it takes a little bit of bravery, right? So that classic, you know, is bravery and shorter supply uh, than genius, perhaps. Um, you know, more people should, more people should seriously consider it. And then um, it's about being ready to think long-term. I guess the other piece is, um, you know, what's the good advice? The good advice is think about what business you're uniquely suited to build that nobody else is building, right? I did that. Um, You know, think about what you can do on 10 years, not just one year. So people tend to overestimate what they can accomplish in a year and be very impatient and think uh, much more poorly about what's possible if they dedicate themselves to something for 10 years, um, which you know, things compound. So if you're willing to compound over a decade, you can accomplish a tremendous amount and really change many, many lives, not just your own. Um, Yeah, you know, I don't know if I'm saying anything particularly novel here, but uh, I do wish more people would try. And I think, um, you know, it's really attractive about going to these ugly baby problems. They kind of talk about that as, uh, you know, you're not just trying to catch a trend or a wave. You're looking at a real problem that's on love that exists out in the world today. They're everywhere, especially if you're willing to go places that um, aren't as uh, hot or trendy, right? So uh, maybe less fun, maybe where you're going to be more alone, but, you know, boundaries of, you know, government or legal complexity deep inside uh, companies, right? Finding things that have really high leverage that are just being neglected because no one has the time to chase them, um, you know, with the right tenacity and methodology. I think it's, I want to say easy, but it's very predictable that you can build a business there, right? If you just stick with it. Um, yeah. Is that a good answer? Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's really good. And if I had to summarize it, it the message I think I get from you, and, and this is from like third third party perspective, and I don't know you that well, but I, I would say is, you know, um, you should spend a lot of time thinking critically about, you know, like how you can do it and, and plan and like have a robust like um, process for doing that. But once you've done a lot of critical thinking and like, and you, you know, you have a, a good shot, uh, you shouldn't be afraid uh, to be be confident that you can go out there and actually make something happen. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think, um, I think if you put in that time and thought it's easy to become convicted, right? Like uh, right. it didn't take me long to be like, okay, this is really it. I've done my research. I understand the path to get to revenue. I understand the path to finance. Um, and I just have to, you know, be ready to do what it takes, right? So um, what's an interesting one? For an enterprise sale like what we do, it can take up to four years to really crack a predictable sales cycle. Yeah. So you might be looking at four years of unpredictable sales and difficulty cracking that sales cycle. Um, and it did. 
to take us a lot of time to crack the sales cycle. But if you know that you budget accordingly, you plan methodologically, right? Then you're not going to be discouraged. And that's a huge accomplishment when you do do it. And then right, compound, 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 right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then nobody can really catch you. Um, long <laughs> that's what I think. That's great. Yeah. There's nothing like enterprise sales cycles. They're, uh, they're quite bears. Um, very cool. What do you mind if uh, we do a quick round of overrated or underrated in our last couple of minutes? Sure. Let's do it. Absolutely. So Halifax, Nova Scotia, overrated or underrated? Uh, so uh, I knew you were going to ask me this one. It's funny. I usually don't talk about Halifax because most Americans don't know what it is, right? So I'll be like, <laughs> I'm from the East Coast of Canada. They're like, like Toronto? And I say, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, like Toronto. Toronto. Sure. sure. We'll, we'll, we'll just go, go with that. No, no, let's move on. Um, but um, what? Halifax is my hometown. Um, it's a university town. Um, what do I really love about Halifax still? We hire a lot in Halifax. I think. Um, the talent that comes out of the universities there is underrated. Uh, and I'll share that with people, even though it might give me more competition for that talent. I think incredibly talented, hungry people, huge intake of uh, immigrants. So Canada's really, really good at opening the door to talented immigrants. A lot of them land in Halifax. Great. I'd love to meet them. Um, and then they go through the universities and, and they're excellent. So um, that's wonderful about Halifax. Beautiful to visit in the summer uh, too. So I'll give Halifax uh, underrated. That's great. Discourses on Livy, overrated or underrated? Yeah. Um, sounds really cute. Get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> I think it's underrated and maybe vehemently so, right? So Machiavelli gets a pretty bad rap. I'm a little nervous talking about it. So he's maybe, maybe going to judge me. But um, I think if you read Discourses on Livy, um, what did I really appreciate about that book? Uh, I think I am with the camp that sees Machiavelli as a patriot who's really trying to figure out what's right. Um, for the people in his nation. Uh, some of the things that he talks about in Discourses on Libby digs into sort of long-standing truths of how people think and organize and can be moved, right? You can recognize and extract those truths without um, having to, you know, then go with a medieval prescription of how to apply those truths, right? But um, if you want to solve grand global challenges, coordination problems, work with large groups of people, then it really behooves you to understand how people work both as individuals and groups, right? So there's a saying um, that great CEOs become masters of people. And certainly my experience on this journey is that that is very necessary. And so um, underrated and doesn't deserve the bad rap that it gets, but certainly you need to read it with a modern you know, I, right. And think about right. what's true to extract there and, and what doesn't, what do you, what can you leave behind? Um, because it is a very old book. Absolutely. Um, I might mispronounce this Edumenicab. <laughs> the Alzheimer's drug. You know what? I think you did great. <laughs> I think you did great. Um, what do I want to say about the Alzheimer's drug? You know, um, I think that one's been overrated. I think the consensus view is now that it's been overrated. Um, you know, what's been really sad is that, with that one moving, there was a lot of hope for Alzheimer's companies. So I mentioned earlier that it's been an unpopular, it's like a red-haired boy. Nobody wants to work with um, Alzheimer's. And yet there are fabulous interventions and treatments out there that just need um, some financing or someone to pick them up and take them the rest of the way. And uh, there was a lot of hope with that drug that the industry would start to change its mind and attitudes would change. It'd be easier to move them through. But kind of had the yeah, opposite. Uh, Alzheimer's companies are doing... Yeah, they're doing heroic sales and the winds have really um, blown in the opposite direction for them. So uh, I've got companies that I work with right now where we're talking about how that's impacting the way that they're perceived and how we um, use some of the tools that we have to overcome that challenge. Awesome. Bertrand Russell, 
Overrated or underrated? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. <laughs> I like Virgin Russell. I don't know what most people think about Virgin Russell. Underrated, overrated. Um, what will I tell you about Virgin Russell? I just really enjoyed his autobiography, which is, I assume, where you pick this one up. Um, I think there's something really nice about how human and raw he is about his life's journey in that particular book. And for those who are listening who haven't read it, who maybe do uh, enjoy Bertrand Russell. Um, one of the things that's very cool there beyond him talking about growing up, going through university, some of the big transitions in his life, but I think are mirrored in transitions um, that you can go through today is that he spends the end of his life writing letters with all these, uh, you know, kind of leading intellectuals of his time, right? So he's writing letters to Wittgenstein and Einstein. And it's really um, quite interesting to see those exchanges. And I think there are echoes of that and um, what the internet's allowed a lot more people to find their tribe, right? Maybe that's Bertrand Russell finding his tribe over time. Uh, internet's a lot of us find our tribe, right? Maybe it's something mirrored in, you know, the way that we talk to each other about progress and uh, the progress studies community or other communities. And, and uh, anyway, that's what I liked about Bertrand Russell's autobiography. I really love that. I really love that. Well, um, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today on a Saturday. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, where can people find you? Where should we send them? Where should we send them? Um, I think the best place for people who found me here to find me is, um, why can I give it my, my personal email address? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, don't come to my company website. You'll go through a whole round of triage and get treated like a company. So don't do that. But um, certainly welcome to find me on Facebook. I think that's a good place to connect with folks affiliated with the pro- progress community. And then uh, if you find me on Medium, I've got a page about myself. Um, where I think uh, you got both discourses on Levy and Bertrand Russell, and my email is uh, written out at the bottom. Um, so maybe maybe we won't say it for the transcript, but Rachel uh, at mindvehicle mindvehicles.com. Hopefully we can break that up so it doesn't get scraped. But uh, if you want to drop me a note there, I'd love to hear from people. And maybe one request is if you're listening to this and you think you can apply some of what I've talked about or learned at Motion Hall to the energy sector, boy, would I love to meet somebody who's interested in mobilizing. Uh, tech transfer more efficiently in the uh, energy and climate change sector. I think a lot of the things that we've learned do transfer, but I can't take it on in addition to life sciences at this time. So that's somebody I'd love to meet. That's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Will. This is really fun. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.